According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are once again in Philippians chapter 2, looking at verses 19 and following. Philippians 2, verses 19 and following to the end of the chapter. Looks like that's verse 30. (laughs) All right. In uh, the portion of the book that's called Travel Arrangements, and yet there's so much more going on than just the travel arrangements, and uh, we want to pick up on these details, particularly as they apply to, uh, to us and where we are as a training ministry, as a local church, and uh, when do we know if a man is ready to be sent forth? When do we know if a man is sufficiently trained to pursue ministry in, uh, in certain things? And I think the biggest uh, phrase of all is the one that starts the entire paragraph, I hope in the Lord Jesus. I hope in the Lord Jesus. And everything we do has to be in the will of God. And when Jesus Christ is the head of the church, then that means that, that everything we do has to be in the Lord Jesus. Because if Jesus isn't opening the door, then that door's not open. He opens doors no man can shut. He shuts doors no man can open. And if we try in ministry to open a door ourselves, that's just doomed. What are we doing? We want to, uh, to do everything that we do in the will of God according to the will of Jesus Christ as the head of the church. And so for all ministry pursuits, we have to recognize that. Varieties of gifts, but one spirit. Varieties of ministries, but one Lord. All right, Jesus Christ is the one that directs us in our ministry pursuits, and that, uh, that becomes important. All right, so I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. We recognize that Paul is not at this time encouraged, but he wants to become encouraged. And so he will become encouraged when uh, Timothy faithfully executes his assignment, like a, a soldier on a recon mission. Then uh, Timothy is being sent to Philippi to go and report back. And that's what we're going to deal with here this morning. All right? Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God this morning. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, making sure we're in fellowship and humble to receive the Word implanted. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have this morning to assemble together. We thank you for a land of freedom, a land in which we can meet in a public building with a sign out front and a website telling the whole world who we are and where we are and what we're doing. Father, we are here to glorify your son and to present ourselves before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So Father, we thank you for this as a grace provision. None of us earns this. Not one of us uh, has earned or deserved anything, Father, but by your grace we're saved and by your grace We're uh, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So uh, bless this day, Father. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our heart to receive your truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so this being the final portion of chapter 2 that we're going to deal with here, again, Philippians chapter 2 this morning, verses 19 and following. And this is the portion uh, that I simply gave the label, Travel Arrangements. And uh, so Timothy is the first one that's mentioned. Uh, Epaphroditus will be mentioned next, although he's actually going to travel first. And then Paul also wants to make the trip. He's just not sure when and how or if he's going to be able to do that. So all of these travel arrangements are being spoken of here. And we recognize, 
as we talk about, where did I put it? Here we go. Um, that he hopes to send Timothy there in the Lord to conduct a spiritual appraisal of the Philippians. It's like if you're selling your house or you're buying a house and you've got to get it appraised. You've got to have an inspection done. And somebody who knows what they're looking at has to do the inspection. It does you no good if to get somebody that's clueless to look around and not know what he's looking at. All right? And like we had this morning, some piece of equipment by the electrical box, and I didn't know what it was, so I'm useless in looking at that kind of stuff. Um, and so Paul is going to send him there, and he says, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. And so Timothy has to go and inspect them. He has to go and evaluate their spiritual walk. He has to evaluate their function as a local church. And then he's going to come back and he's going to report to the Apostle Paul. And this is all valid. This is all appropriate. This is not uh, gossip. This is not uh, any kind of a spy mission, as it were. Uh, he's telling the Philippians that, by the way, when Timothy comes, he's going to check you out. And he's going to come back and tell me how you're doing. And that becomes important, all right? And Timothy is the only one that is uh, eligible to do this. This uh, segment is very similar to 1 Corinthians 4. We dealt with that already in verses 17 through 19. And then we spent quite a bit of time on this phrase, in the Lord Jesus. We hope in the Lord Jesus, or do we? Paul says he hopes in the Lord Jesus. What's the difference? When you read the sentence and it says, I hope to send Timothy to you shortly, does that not mean the same thing? It means he hopes to send Timothy shortly, right? But when he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that adds a dimension that we want to pay attention to. We don't want to just gloss over it or ignore it or pretend it's not there. It is actually significant. What it means is we are subjecting, Paul is subjecting his personal desire to the headship of Jesus Christ. And everything that we should be doing in the Lord, everything we should be doing in Christ, everything we should be doing in the Lord Jesus means that you and I better uh, have a conscious thought as it relates to submitting to the will of Jesus Christ, all right, in all that we do. And so uh, there's, there's a long list of things that we should do, but with respect to uh, the geographic will of God, with respect to where we go and, and things of that nature, are we subjecting them to the will of God? As, as it says in James, don't just say, I'm going to go to this town, I'm going to work for a year, I'm going to make some money. Uh, don't say that. Say, if the Lord wills, I will go to such and such a place and do such and such a thing. All right? And so we want to subject our personal desire. Jesus did this in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, not my will, but thine be done. And we need to do this with, with everything in the will of God. So whether we're greeting one another in the Lord or we're hoping in the Lord or the other things that we can do in the Lord, I gave you a handout last week. There's a long list of things we can do in the Lord, <laughs> right? We can know in the Lord. We can be convinced in the Lord. We can receive a saint in the Lord. We can greet others in the Lord. All right, I greeted you this morning. Was that in the Lord or not? And how do you know? <laughs> how do I know? Well, the Lord knows, all right? Am I in fellowship? Am I out of fellowship? Am I greeting you in the will of Jesus Christ? See, you can obey your parents in the Lord. And we're supposed to, right? Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, we can take that phrase out of there, and it still means children obey your parents, doesn't it? If we just say children obey your parents, okay? This is my Mother's Day message, by the way. 
if, we, if I say children obey your parents, doesn't that mean the same thing? But then when I say children, or when Scripture says children obey your parents in the Lord, what, what exactly does that add? And are we aware of that? Are we mindful of that? And this, I think, this starts to happen the more that we occupy with Christ, the more that we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so we include Him in all that we say, all that we do, and everything that we're doing is in the Lord when we're mindful of that, when we're subjecting our will to the will of Jesus Christ. Same thing with hoping in the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord, standing firm in the Lord, living in harmony in the Lord requesting and exhorting in the Lord. How about benefiting from another in the Lord? That's a fun one. We uh, dealt with that one Wednesday night. Benefit from one another. In Philemon 20, he, he tells Philemon, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Let me benefit from you in the Lord. Now, that might strike you as a little bit odd, especially living in the world we live in and this fallen cosmos system and what Satan does. Let me tell you something. Benefiting from another person, the way this world works, uh, that's, that's, that can be very carnal very quickly. This world will, will uh, kind of you know, devour one another and they, they get very, uh, they, this world is full of people that use other people. And so they, they come alongside and all they want is they want something from you. And so, and then they're going to take what they can get from you. And then when you're not, they can't get anything else from you, when you're of no more use to them, then it's, you know, goodbye and move on to the next victim. Isn't that how this world works? And so in a lot of ways, that whole, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of a thing. And if, if I have no use for you, well, then, you know, I'm, I'm moving on. And so the idea that, wait a minute, there's a sanctified aspect to this whereby I should benefit from you. I should receive something from everybody in this room because we're all born again believers in Jesus Christ. And we're all here to edify one another. We're all here to encourage one another, to bless one another, to love one another, to serve one another. And so there's nothing wrong with saying so (laughs) in the Lord. Let me benefit from you in the Lord. Don't you want to benefit from me in the Lord today? There's there's some preaching that's happening. Do you want to benefit from that? And so you're going to benefit from me in the Lord. I can also benefit from you in the Lord. We all benefit from each other in the Lord. And so that's Philemon verse 20. Ultimately, we're going to die in the Lord. And uh, that's Revelation 14, 13. And some other passages that went with that. All right. In any event, consequences of sending Timothy there and back again was for Paul to learn of the Philippians' condition and to be encouraged. That's the goal. That's the objective. To learn uh, of their condition and to be encouraged. And notice when he phrases this in the future tense. All right. We kind of pay attention to it. For example, when Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. Do we pay attention to that? And we stop and we recognize, you know what, there's no church yet in the, in the Old Testament. There's no church yet when Jesus was uh, on earth in his ministry that Israel is not the church because the church has not yet been built. He says, I will build my church as a future promise, a future expectation. Well, here too is a future expectation. I will be encouraged. What does that mean? He's not yet encouraged, <laughs> okay? And it's okay to admit that. It's all right. Jesus admitted, he said, my soul is troubled to the point of death. And he was trying to encourage his disciples to pray with him and they kept falling asleep, right? There's nothing wrong with saying, I'm not encouraged right now. What, I mean, what else are you going to do? Are you going to lie about it? 
You can lie to yourself. You're going to lie to God. I mean, if you're not encouraged right now and you believe that something will provide encouragement, then you're following a biblical pattern, actually. And the Apostle Paul is expressing that. Jesus expressed that. I think we can find it in other places as well. And so I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. And it's curious to me that he's going to send Timothy specifically because of his qualifications. (laughs) He's not going to ask the Philippians how they are. He doesn't send them a letter and say, by the way, write back, tell me how you're doing. Right? Rather than asking the Philippians for an inadequate response to the how are you question. And it would be inadequate. It would be inadequate. I think oftentimes it's very difficult to provide a self-assessment because we're so subjective. All right? And we also tend to get rather complacent, and we tend to get rather comfortable with our own carnality. And so we convince ourselves that we're okay. Whereas a third party can come in, an apostle can come in, a pastor can come in, somebody that's of of like-mindedness with Paul and can give a real assessment and say, eh, they're not so good. Okay, they're struggling with this, they're struggling with that. They got, they got some strong points here, but they got some weak points there. All right? And he can give a real assessment. Timothy is tasked with a spiritual and pastoral inspection. He's going to provide a comprehensive response to the how are they question. And, and at this point, Timothy is the only one qualified. He says, nobody else, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Because they're selfish. They're actually limiting their capacity to pursue ministry as Paul is, uh, is charting it out for them there. All right. And so, not, uh, not to condemn those men. There's faithful men there. You know, we learn, we learn about other men that are there. Epaphras and, and Aristarchus and Demas and and uh, Luke and, and Titus. I mean, there's other men that are there and they're going to be fruitful later. They're just not ready at this time. Okay? And that's, uh, that's something that the apostle has to recognize. Paul's uh, desired encouragement is not what we might expect. It's not the paraclesis encouragement. It's, it's actually, it's a, it's a hapax legomena only used here and it's a play on words, actually. There's a, there's a tandem of things here, a little bit of a word play. But you uh, psukeo, to be good sold, to be well sold, to be well sold. And it only shows up here and it only shows up uh, in uh, one place in the Septuagint. And uh, we looked at this. In fact, I'm kind of reviewing more than I should be reviewing this morning. We did a lot of this on Wednesday. Um, and so the, the vocabulary there for being well sold, we'll let that go for now. All right. Picking up where we left off then. Selfishness. Do we want to be selfish? <laughs> no. Um, selfishness destroys ministry capacity. The fact that everybody else except Timothy was seeking after their own interests. They were not concerned about the welfare of others. That was a problem. That was a disqualifying problem. It means that he cannot send them to this ministry. It's similar to the warnings that happened in 1 Timothy. Don't lay hands on a man too hastily. That, uh, that there's pride issues that have to be worked out. That this man must be humble enough to be in the ministry. Otherwise, the, the snare of the devil is going is to bring him down. It's going to destroy a flock. And uh, so we have, to, uh, we have to pay attention to this as well. 
Timothy is the only student who is of kindred spirit to the Apostle Paul. And this is the other half of that wordplay because we had you psukeo earlier for encouraged, and here we have iso, isopsukos, isopsukos. And uh, to have a soul that is an isotope of Paul's soul. If you ever you know the word isotope, right? If you study chemistry. And so here's isopsukos. And it's as if Paul and Timothy share the same soul. It's as if when, when Timothy sees something, it has the same perspective as if Paul sees something. If, uh, if Paul has a heart for something, it's like Timothy has that same heart for something. Because they are of one soul as it relates to the ministry. And the usage here is unique in the New Testament, similar to the usage in Psalm 51. No, would we decide? We decided that was a typo on Wednesday. In Psalm uh, 55. Is that what it was? 55. All right. The Septuagint numbers and the English numbers don't always match up, and I need to be more careful with that. But to be of one soul, to be like-minded in that regard. So let's pick up here. Um, Again, I have no one else of kindred spirit. Well, what exactly does that mean? I think in Psalms we have the best illustration. In Psalms we have that best illustration. It is 55. 13. And as David is lamenting his betrayal, as David is lamenting, this psalm is written when he's lost his throne and he's on the run and he's fleeing because his son, Absalom, has stolen the throne and he's done so with the help of David's greatest advisor, Ahithophel. And Ahithophel now turns traitor and Ahithophel now is counseling Abimelech is counseling uh, Absalom, and now David's on the run. And that's what hurts the most. He says in verse 12, it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. That would actually be easier to deal with. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. You know, in some respects, that's easy. Dealing with the, the hatred and the revulsion and the attacks from the enemies, all right, there you go. But it is you, a man my equal. And this is how the Septuagint renders that isopsukos, the the one soul uh, like-mindedness that Paul and Timothy have, David and Ahithophel have. And he calls him my equal. Isn't that powerful? If David is the only man in the Bible called a man after God's own heart, and then this is the kind of compliment that he extends to Ahithophel, as a man, my equal, somebody that's isopsukos with, with David, that's powerful. He goes on to say, my companion and my familiar friend, we who had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God in the throng. And this is where that, that how that like soul comes together, how that like mindedness comes together, because you're occupied with Christ. You're in the word of God. You're worshiping together before the Lord. And that kind of a capacity, see, that kind of capacity that David had, uh, imagine the depths that he wanted to go into in, in cycling doctrine and talking to fellow believers. And how many people could he really talk the Word of God to that depth, see? Ahithophel was one. And yet Ahithophel turned traitor. We discussed this in the aspect of, of what that moment was. What is it that causes a friend to become an enemy, see? And, and I'm convinced that, that the event was the Bathsheba event. 
that because she was his granddaughter. Ahithophel was, was the grandfather of, of Bathsheba. And so in, uh, in, in terms of what happens when you betray a friend and what happens then, I mean, the real, we, we think of Ahithophel as the traitor, but that was the, the, the revenge traitor after David had been the traitor, had betrayed uh, Ahithophel and, and Ahithophel's son, Bathsheba's father, and, and Bathsheba's husband. I mean, the whole family was betrayed in that, in that Bathsheba episode. It also causes me to wonder because of the parallel here with Judas Iscariot. And Judas is the, is the, Ahithophel is the foreshadowing and Judas is the fulfillment, of course, of betraying Jesus. And when he comes to kiss him in the garden and, and Jesus calls him friend, that just, it gets me. And I, and I wonder, what was, what was that like? And how did Jesus have to condescend in order to pursue a friendship with an unbeliever like Judas Iscariot? The one that was going to betray him. And yet he called him friend. Okay? And so that's a, a curious concept to me. So Timothy shared Paul's genuine concern for the Philippians. The Philippians concerning you things. And it's a little bit awkward to write it down that way, but write it down that way anyway. The concerning you things. The concerning you things. Okay? That's what, Paul, that's what Paul's concerned about. That's what Timothy's concerned about. The concerning you things. Okay? And uh, in chapter 1, we had the concerning me things. You might remember that? The concerning me things that we read about in Philippians 1.12. And uh, this is a corollary to that. Now it's the concerning you things in uh, Philippians 2. Let me get out of Psalms and get back to where we belong here. <clears throat> and so we're going to study how to be worried biblically. How to be worried without sinning. <laughs> okay? Um, because we don't want to worry. The Bible tells us to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. All right, does that sound familiar? Okay. And in fact, uh, even, I mean, you don't have to go too far to find it. We're already in Philippians, right? So we don't want to be anxious. And yet the same word for anxious is the same word here for concerned, right? And so we, we, we do this, and it's not a gimmick. It's, a, it's probably useful. Uh, if you if you want to use different vocabulary for the right kind of concerned or the wrong kind of worry, <laughs> okay, um, that's fine. But uh, in Greek, it's the same verb. In Greek, it's merimenao, um, to worry, to be concerned, to care for, to be anxious. Merimenao, number thirty three oh nine, and there's nineteen places in the New Testament you'll find merimenao. <clears throat> we also have a noun, merimna. Merimna, number 3308, and there's six uses there where it talks about worry or concern or anxiety. And so it's a noun. It refers to the, to the anxiety itself. These are the things we're supposed to cast on him because he cares for us. All of our merimna. Okay? And then there's actually a, a spiffy a little adjective that means that you're concern-free. You're worry-free. That you have no worries at all. Called ah merimnas. It's a spiffy little adjective there. Uh, and actually, <clears throat> Paul uses it when he talks about um, the single person. If you're unmarried, then you are not concerned about pleasing your spouse, and you have freedom then as a single person to have pure, undistracted devotion to the Lord. And so he uses the, uh, the, uh, the adjective there. And so we're going to kind of break this down because it's like fear. 
There's the good kind of fear, there's the wrong kind of fear, and Greek uses the same phobos, right? There's a jealousy, sinful jealousy, godly jealousy, and it's the same Greek word, same thing here with concern or worry. There is a place to be sanctified in your worry. Parents should be sanctified in a worry, in a concern, in a prayer sense on behalf of their children. And I don't care how old the children are, especially when they turn adult. It just ramps up your prayer life all the more, doesn't it? Okay? All right. Some of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay? And we're, we're kind of in that awkward stage right now. So I'm trying to learn from you guys, those older than me that have the adult children. And uh, we're still, we're half empty nesters. We have two that have moved out of the house, and we have two that are still in the house. So um, this is what happens. Does the worrying stop? No, no. But you cast your anxiety on him, all right? You give it to the Lord, and you become a prayer warrior with the Lord on behalf of, of these things. So let's recognize there's worry in the bad sense, and there's worry in the good sense, all right, and so it's worth you know charting them out, putting them in buckets, and saying, okay, this is a bad worry, this is a good worry, this is a bad worry, and make sure that you have your verses straight when you're talking about that, because there's plenty of bad things to worry about, and we don't want to have any of those, right? In a sense, it's almost like you know what, I should be if I'm like-minded with Jesus Christ, then I should be so worried about all the proper things that I don't have time to be worried about all those other foolish things, <laughs> okay? And uh, I think there's aspects there we could pay attention to. But obviously, and these are all going to be very famous, all going to be very well known to you. In Matthew 6, in Matthew 6, we have a whole string of these. Matthew 6 and verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. Okay, do you think that's Zoe life there? Uh-uh. Okay. As to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? You know, are you are you worked up over the wrong thing? See? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. And so there's worry. <clears throat> that's uh verse twenty five. And look at the birds. In verse 26, they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Clearly. He takes care of the birds. He can take care of you, isn't he? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? So you sit there and you fret and you froom and whatever, and have you accomplished anything? <laughs> you know? Does all that worry achieve anything at all? And... Uh, Verse 28, why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Okay, you're worried about the wrong thing. Verse 31, do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? And for the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. Your heavenly father knows that you need these things. Your father's not stupid. He's got a plan. Make sure you're walking in that plan and it takes care of itself. Seek first His kingdom, His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself each day. And by the way, tomorrow will take care of itself. Guess what that is? That's another use of the same verb. It's a positive use of the same verb. You've got a negative use and a positive use in the same, in the same, uh, same verse. So don't 
negative worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for, that's a positive use, tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And so that's the, uh, the use there, okay? Verse 25, 27, 28, 31, and twice in verse 34. Uh, still in Matthew, verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 19. When persecution comes up, don't worry about it. <laughs> Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, so when you find yourself in a situation totally out of your control, totally out of your hands, totally with, you know, you might say, how did I get here? Well, you got there because God put you there. How about that? So don't worry about what you're going to say. When they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. In those crisis moments, when you are where you didn't want to be and you're, all these things are totally out of your control and God has placed you here, and, and this, is, this is all just completely you know, undeserved suffering and persecution, here you are. You didn't want to be here, but here you are. Okay? You're there because God put you there. And God's going to use you. So relax. Have fun. <laughs> okay? This is perfect for faith rest. And just say, all right, Lord, I've never been an eloquent person, but there's about to be some amazing words coming here because you promised. And then just watch. Okay? Watch what he does. Watch what he does. That's the context for this passage. Okay? Don't abuse it. Don't misuse it. I've heard some people try to say, oh, I don't have to learn Greek and Hebrew. I don't have to study to be a pastor. I can just, you know, it'll be given to me in that hour wrong, <laughs> okay? You're abusing the uh, context of this passage. You do have to study and prepare. All right, so that's uh, Matthew ten nineteen. By the way, there's parallels to all of these in Mark and Luke, and um, I flagged them with little A's, B's, and C's on the slides, so we'll point those out and save ourselves some time when we get that far. Matthew thirteen twenty two. The parable of the sower. The one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and notice the worry, the merimna of the world, and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So if you find that that worry of the world is, uh, that merimna of the cosmos is uh, overwhelming your capacity to bear fruit, that's what this verse is talking about. Okay? The merimna of this cosmos. And so, uh, man, refocus. Get rid of that. Take that marimna and cast it on the Lord and have the proper marimna, have the proper worry, have the proper care, which we're going to see is for one another, the care that we have for members of the body of Christ, the care that we have for what our brothers and our sisters are going through. The best antidote to your own pity party, by the way, is becoming an intercessory prayer warrior on behalf of everybody except you. Okay? <laughs> And we got a long enough prayer list that you can pray for all kinds of people except you, except yourself. And then it's, it's, it's marvelous how that keeps you from 
you know, throwing the next pity party or being all wrapped up in the subjective aspects of these things. We'll show you those verses as well. <clears throat> Matthew twenty-eight fourteen. And this is curious to me. This is the other one of those uh, worry-free verses. Because uh, the body was missing. <laughs> That's a problem. Jesus said He was going to rise from the dead. And then He did. Okay? And now we have 2,000 years of the greatest I told you so message ever. We get to say, He is risen. And, and the Pharisees, of course, are furious. The Sanhedrin is, is apoplectic. And the Roman soldiers don't know what to say. Okay? And uh, so they get bribed. And um, in verse 12, when they, when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And we will win him over and you will be worry-free. That's the idiom. You'll be worry-free. Okay? So let me ask you something. Throwing money at a problem, is that how you stay worry-free? <laughs> Why are there so many people that seem to think that's the solution? Just throw money at it, worry-free. Wrong. All right, so there's our uses in, in Matthew. Uh, we don't need to turn to Mark 4.19 because that's parallel to uh, Matthew 13. But if you want to write it down, you can. Uh, we don't need to turn to Mark 13.11 because that's parallel to what we've already read there in, uh, in Matthew 10.19. So uh, see, we're saving time. We don't have to turn there. Uh, Luke 8.14, again, we don't have to turn there because we've already covered that. That's the one that's parallel to uh, Matthew 13 and Mark 4. That's the parable of the sower and the, the thorns. Okay, All three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all make very clear that uh, the seed that's sown among the thorns, that it's the worry of the world. It's the worry of the world that chokes out fruitfulness. The merimna of the cosmos that chokes out fruitfulness. Okay, But one that's unique to Luke is uh, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And uh, here's a nice, another Mother's Day message. Wasn't this great? <laughs> See, we don't, we don't preach liturgically. We don't spotlight holidays with particular sermons and whatnot. We just keep doing what we're doing. But the Lord has a powerful way to weave little things through here and there. The Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, <laughs> you are worried and bothered about so many things. All right, worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. And so, uh, yeah, there's a whole sermon right there, isn't there? The whole Mary and Martha story. And Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha's in the kitchen and doing all that. And, and the more she's doing, she's actually, the less she's doing. Because the more and more her mental attitude sin grows, the more and more her resentment and bitterness grows, all she's doing is piling up wood, hand, stubble at the judgment seat of Christ. <laughs> you know, So she's busy, busy, busy 
and doing less and less and less because of the attitude, because of the worry. And, uh, well, there's a message there, okay? Um, That's Luke chapter 10. Luke 12, we've already covered because that's got its Matthew 10 parallel and its Mark 13 parallel. Um, Although it's, it's... in, in Luke 12, they kind of blend it a little bit. Let me turn over there, because in this chapter, he includes two different aspects. Luke 12, 11 is the uh, don't worry about what you're going to say or speak in your defense. And then that precedes a later message where um, he talks about seek first the kingdom of God and, and stop worrying about the things of, of temporal life. So slightly different order in Luke than we have it in, uh, in Matthew. Luke 21 is unique to Luke. Luke 21, 34. <clears throat> and this is a warning to Israel in the tribulation, so we don't have a direct application, but we, secondarily we have an application. We can be mindful of this. Um, be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And so, you know, common solutions, if you have the worries of life, uh, how do you solve the worries of life? Well, dissipation and drunkenness works for a lot of people. (laughs) Okay. And uh, Jesus is saying, no, that's not your procedure. And uh, so be on your guard, and that day will not come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. But keep on the alert at all times. Now, again, the direct application here is the Jews and the tribulation. But we have our own application to make, and secondarily, right? And isn't there not an analogy for us? Because we have an imminent event called the rapture. And that can happen at any moment. That can happen today. And so there is an analogy for us in our application. We want to be on the alert. We want to at all times be praying. We want to at all times not be worried about the things of this world and all panicky over all these things. So we want to keep on the alert at all times <clears throat> and not uh, solving our worry issues with uh, <laughs> drunkenness and dissipation. All right, that's it for the Gospels. Then we have uh, Philippians 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 7. Do I need to turn there or do you have it memorized? We should do Scripture recitations this morning for everyone that's doing Scripture memory. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing. Okay? Be anxious for nothing. That's comprehensive, don't you think? Does nothing mean nothing? Well, just in case you're confused and you don't think that nothing means nothing, then the next phrase doubles that. Because the next phrase says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. Okay, And this is a classic. Paul writes this style frequently. He'll take a nothing on the one hand and an everything on the other hand, and you, know, you put it together and you've got, yeah, you've got everything twice. So uh, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so the answer is prayer. The answer is not drunkenness or dissipation. The answer is not taking matters in your own hands. The answer is not throwing money at a problem. The answer is prayer. We're casting our anxiety upon Him. He cares for us. The answer is prayer. 
And uh, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The value of this prayer. By the way, it doesn't say that you're going to see an immediate answer to that prayer. You might, I mean, that, the answer to that prayer may come decades later. But the peace that surpasseth all understanding, that comes right at the moment, at the moment that you choose to uh, orient properly to your anxiety. Okay? It's a marvelous provision that God gives us here. And so uh, a couple of things here. <clears throat> I think some people try to claim verse 7 as a promise without obeying verse 6. And they get mad at God because they don't have this peace of Christ that surpasseth all understanding. I say, well, you're not praying about it. What are you doing? You're disobeying verse 6. Don't blame God for not uh, fulfilling verse 7. They go together. And then also pay attention to, well, guard your hearts and your minds Understand that. I think all too often we're not protective of our souls. We're not protective of our hearts and our minds. They need to be guarded. And I think there's an awful lot that happens. I think there's a lot of destructive things that happen. That's why uh, the dangers of psychoheresy we've spoken of in the past. And aspects there, when you go in and you expose your soul to some unbeliever and you're paying them 100 bucks a hundred bucks an hour, a billable hour, wait a minute. Is he entitled to my soul? Who's the shepherd of my soul? And this verse says, uh, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think we need to be more protective of these things. Finally, 1 Peter 5, 7. First <clears throat> Peter 5, 7. Again, you can stand and recite this with Scripture memory. You probably have it memorized. The, um, but in this context too, I mean, this is the, this is the, the significant first Peter five text whereby we highlight the, the benefits of shepherds in a local church. And, uh, Peter is exhorting his fellow elders to shepherd the flock of God among you. I love that. Shepherd the flock of God among you. And you're not accountable for the entire church universal, <laughs> but the flock of God among you that is the local church, that is Austin Bible Church, all right? That's your responsibility. Shepherd that segment of the church universal. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight. This is where we have a blend of the pastor terminology, the elder terminology, and the overseer terminology. All three are here here in this passage. Because they're called elders in verse 1, they're commanded to shepherd in verse 2, and they're commanded to oversee. Not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. Compulsion is never the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Okay, that, Again, that's that selfishness issue, the, the, the money and the, the wolves in sheep's clothing that are just in it for the money, the hirelings that are not shepherds. Jesus addressed this too. And then it says, nor yet as lording it, lording it, Right? You take the noun kurios for Lord and you make a verb out of it. <laughs> so, yeah. Who would, well, we, we, we can't qualify to be the Lord. Why do we think we qualify to lord it over others? Nor yet is lording it over, and here it is, those allotted to your charge. That's my favorite phrase in this whole chapter right there. Those allotted to your charge. Okay? 
Because this speaks to the design of a flock, the design of a church, the design of the shepherding of souls, the biblical care of souls. And this is, uh, this is what I tell visitors too, by the way. You know, uh, what's, your, what's your criteria for joining a church? Are you checking out their singles ministry? Are you checking out their Sunday school, their nursery, the bowling league? What, what are you looking at? Okay. <laughs> and people have all kinds of criteria. Well, you know, they, they, don't, they want to drive more than, more than 11 minutes or whatever. They got, they got criteria for distance or proximity or, or what have you. In my, in my mind, there is one prime directive. I want to ask Jesus Christ, to whom have you allotted my soul? Those allotted to your charge. See, who does the allotting? Do you allot yourself? It says, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge. So, okay, pastor, you've got sheep. It's the flock of God among you. And these sheep have been allotted to your charge. And if there's a sheep that's not allotted to your charge, then he's somebody else's sheep. I'm not going to go down to Bastrop and tell Pastor Cliff how to run his church. Those aren't my sheep. They've been allotted to Pastor Cliff. But those that have been allotted to my charge, all right, you're going to get shepherded. And so that to me, I tell our visitors this, and you know, hope you visit and hope you visit more and keep visiting. And as you visit other places also, be listening for the voice of your shepherd. Be listening for that voice. John 10 says, you will hear his voice. He knows his sheep, his sheep know him. They hear my voice. A stranger they will not follow. So be listening for the voice of your shepherd. You're going to know to whom you've been allotted. And then everything else, who cares? About their bowling league or their singles program or their whatever. All right. Their music. Ooh, that's a big one too. Do they do traditional hymns with a piano or do they do the 7-Eleven hymns, the off-the-wall singing kind of a thing, right? Anyway. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And uh, pay attention there, because that proving is, uh, is going to come up shortly in Philippians when he tells them about Timothy. He says, you know of his proven worth. You know of his proven worth, how he served with me as a child serving his father in the furtherance of the gospel. That proven worth for Timothy, the proving example of the elder, proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is a a reward for faithful shepherds. They get rewarded from the chief shepherd. And notice the reward is when? Not today. It's, or I hope it's today, I hope, because it's when he returns, when the chief shepherd returns. What, what, uh, what, what special blessings in time are we promised? What prosperity gospel should we start preaching? There are no rewards in time that we're promised. God does not say that those, those abundant blessings are going to be just multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. God wants you to be wealthy, okay? Forget that. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. And this is what we're going to get into when we talk about the right kind of worry and the right kind of concern one for another. It requires mutual humility. 
Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. And casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So we have anxieties, he has cares. (laughs) We sin with our sinful anxieties. He doesn't sin when he cares for us. And we don't sin when we care for one another. And we don't sin when we care for our adult children. And we don't sin when we care for those we're supposed to care for. That's not a sin. That is a legitimate care. That's a legitimate concern. And so don't think that we're playing word games or that somehow we're, we're um, uh, splitting hairs, right? That uh, Because if it's in a bad way, we call it worry. If it's in a good way, we call it concern, okay? And, and you can't make a little word gimmick out of it and sanctify your sin, okay? If you're sinfully worrying about something, you can't just call it concern and, <laughs> and tell God it's okay. No, you're sinfully worried about something. Be honest about that. All right, so those are the bad ways. Here's the good ways, in a good sense. And marriage is, is a good worry application. <laughs> Bible doesn't say it's a bad worry. It is a good worry. You know, it's like fight the good fight, worry the good worry. How about that? And worrying the good worry is called marriage. Not fight the good fight. That's not marriage. That's ministry. Boy, I'm going to get in trouble this morning. Happy Mother's Day, everybody. (laughs) 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We taught this, obviously, in the 1 Corinthians series. and In fact, not long ago, I recently listened to every MP3 from this chapter. And... uh, Enjoyed it. Enjoyed it a lot. It's a, it's, a, it's a great passage on marriage. It's a great passage on divorce. It's a great passage on remarriage. It's a good passage on non-marriage. Um, and uh, the whole thing from beginning to end covers uh, a pretty broad spectrum of things. And um, anyway, not to get lost in the entire chapter here this morning, but there's, uh, there's blessings in, uh, in all of this. Now, Verses 32, 33, and 34 have the vocabulary that we're looking at, the marimna, marimnao vocabulary. He says in verse 32, I want you to be free from concern. I want you to be worry-free. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord and how he may please, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world how he may please his wife. Okay? Now, this is not a criticism. It's not saying this is a sin. This is normal. This is real. Married people have legitimate concerns for their spouse. In fact, they are to regard them as more important than themselves. Anyway, his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin... And there's, this is the vocabulary here too, by the way, that talks about married people, divorced people, widowed people, and never been married people. And, and you've got to be uh, cautious on that or you make a misapplication. Um, so the woman who is unmarried, that is she's widowed or divorced, and the virgin, the girl that's never been married, she is concerned about uh, the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit, but the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And so this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion 
to the Lord. Okay? And so this is recognized for what it is. It's recognized for what an advantage can be. If you are, in fact, called in that condition, then rejoice. Great. Run with that. If you are not called in that condition, then, you know, you're not sinning. You're not wrong. You know, don't get divorced so you can be a better Christian. Okay? That's not what it's saying. I want to be clear on that. And so... um, we just have to know the day and age in which we live, particularly as we function in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. And we have to recognize that things are what they are, and we better have our armor on, and we better be walking together as heirs together in the grace of life. All right, so those things there. I think, um, yeah, if I back up slightly, you'll see some of this. Um, In verse 26, I think then that it is good in view of the present distress, it is good for a man to remain as he is. Okay? How do we we understand that? Especially when we have Genesis, it's not good for the man to be alone. Well, in the church age, God may call you to that, depending on the ministry he's assigned to you, depending upon um, the callings and, and different things. Anyway, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Uh, in the condition where you are, that's where God's called you, and so stay faithful. Stay faithful. Anyway, there's more on that. If you want, like I say, they're sitting on the website. The MP3s work just fine. I listened to every single one of them uh, just a couple weeks ago, and uh, they're all sitting there. Chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 25. Remember, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. We've got three chapters here on spiritual gifts. We have three chapters dealing with the church universal as a body and then how we fit together as members of that body and how we serve one another as members of that body. This is the chapter that has verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6 in a trinity where we have varieties of gifts, varieties of ministries, varieties of effects. And we see how the Holy Spirit provides our gift. The Lord leads us in our ministry and the Father accomplishes the effects as He works in and through us. As we get down uh, in uh, each one of these members, this is so easy to teach. I mean, man, I could teach this to a two-year-old. Okay? So uh, the body, uh, verse 14, the body is not one member but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If an ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. I mean, little kids get this. You can have fun with toddlers and, you know, where's your nose? Where's your ear? Where's your other ear? Where's your mouth? Where's your other mouth? You know, and just try to trick them. And they, they look at you like, you know, like you're stupid. We, you know, I know I've only have one nose. I have two ears. Kids, they, they get this. And the parts are where they're supposed to be and God's not making any mistakes. Okay, there's boys and there's girls and we... <laughs> All right, get me going now. God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. So if you're born a boy or you're born a girl, that's what God wanted. Okay? And in the church, you're the body part He wanted you to be. You're the body part He wanted you to be. Don't say, well, I didn't want to be a foot. 
Well, that's what God wanted you to be, and so there you go. And we need everybody. We can't just have a church full of feet. We've got to have all the parts. We've got to have all the different pieces. And so, um, and in fact, if there's a body part you think is less necessary, God says, no, that's more necessary. So in verse 22, on the contrary, it is much truer that members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. And the whole point of this, notice, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. That's what we're driving at. We have care for one another. We worry about one another. I worry about my brothers and sisters, especially the ones I haven't seen for a while, the ones that used to be really, really hungry for teaching. And lately their appetite is different. All right? I worry. Not just because I'm a shepherd, we all should be worrying. We all should have the same concern one for another. And, you know, if you notice somebody and they've lost a lot of weight, have you been sick? You know? Or, you know, never mind, Mother's Day. We should have concern one for another. And that's biblical. That's why we're designed. Because if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If you care, you should care. You don't just see somebody suffering and go, ah, glad that's not me. Boy, hate to be them. Guess what? You are them. We are all one body in Christ. If one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, the members rejoice with it. Real quickly then, 2 Corinthians 11.28. Got to wrap this up. Boy, I spent a whole hour in this chapter. This is his reluctant autobiography. The Apostle Paul writes his bio here. Didn't want to. They forced him. Said, all right, fine. You twisted my arm. I'll have to boast too. Here we go. Because how many times has he been suffered? Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I am more so. Far more labors, far more imprisonments, by the way, including the Ephesian imprisonment in which he writes Philippians. Far, uh, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That gruesome scene from Mel Gibson's movie, Paul went through that five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. We haven't even gotten to the Acts 26 shipwreck yet. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. And all this stuff. I'm running out of time. All these things. And he blows it off. And he says, apart from such external things, verse 28, there is daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I can imagine. No, I can't. I'm a shepherd with a single flock. I can't imagine an apostle with plural flocks. An apostle that has concern for a bunch of knucklehead shepherds, under, you know, pastors and flocks and all these things. Concern. And then Philippians 2.20. I have no one else of genuine who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Positive concern. 
for the welfare of the Philippian believers. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. Thank you for teaching us the difference between sinful and legitimate, sinful worry versus sanctified concern, and the blessing that it is to be concerned about one another. We become Christ-like. Father, he wasn't on the cross thinking about himself. When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. And I thank you for that, Father. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.